Revelation chapter 4 lays out for us, in my opinion, probably what may be the clearest picture of heaven in the Bible. And most of us have a hard time grasping heaven for this reason. And listen very carefully. We think wrongly about it fundamentally. Let me say that again to you. We think wrongly about heaven fundamentally. Let me give you an example. We ask ourselves usually, hey, what are we going to do up there? As if the real point of heaven is making sure that i got something to do. Now, I know you probably don't mean it that way in your motives, but you said that happened. You said, now, now, will I get a harp and a halo? And what about crowns? And you know what? I know that there's rewards. I realize that there's, there's the proper incentive, but think about it. Most of the time, our first questions about heaven are related to what we will get. What we will do. So do you understand sometimes how American consumerism creeps in even to our understanding of heaven? I want to show you today, really, that the centerpiece of heaven is not what will I get and what will I do? How many worlds will, will I be able to travel back and forth to? And what will I look like? And how many clouds will have my name on it? We're going to see what the centerpiece of heaven is today. And hopefully we're going to change our understanding of, of what's going to happen up there. It reminds me of a girl named Fawn. I was a youth pastor in Georgia. Fawn was a brand new Christian, seventh grader. You remember Fawn, don't you? Just a spark plug of a girl. She runs up to me and she says, Todd, I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. Like seventh grade. And she had a, a difficult home. And, and her parents were coming to church. Just a lot of, of, uh, of things in the past they were bringing. And they all just recently been saved. She's like, I can't live and going to heaven. What are we going to do up there? So I, I gave her a, a theologically correct answer. And she hated it. I said, Fawn, we're going to worship God and just praise Jesus Christ. And she went, the whole time? <laughs> That's exactly what she said. And so then I had to back up and say, okay, let me think how I can tell a seventh grader that, you know, and we chatted about it. You know, we, you ever given a response that way sometimes? You can go like this. I have. Eternity is hard to grasp. Praising God. And I say, we're learning how to celebrate. You guys are learning. Today, I've been telling you. I sense God's Spirit just leaving your hands and putting them together. Just celebrating God. If, you, if you're uncomfortable with some of the praise and worship that goes on here, man, you'd better find some comfort places because it's going to go on up there. You with me? Let me show what I'm talking about. Revelation chapter 4. Let's turn there and let's look at really what goes on in heaven. Revelation chapter 4. The Bible says this. Uh, we'll pick up about verse uh, 1. He, he looked. He saw a door standing open in heaven and a voice like a trumpet said, come up here. Have your, have your pen, by the way, ready. I want to have you mark several words and verses. Verse 2, Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Just underline that phrase. Okay? There's someone sitting on the throne. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. By the way, do you know that in Exodus 28, Jasper and Carnelian are the first and last stones on the high priest's garment. I think there's some significance there. What's Christ called the first and the last? So even as John's vision, he saw things, stones. He saw symbols of, of Christ's character. Just a little tidbit for you there. Someone sitting on the throne, 
a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So here's this throne. Someone sitting on it, and around the throne is this rainbow-like stone, this rainbow-like emerald. Which, by the way, in the Bible, rainbows typically represent mercy. In the Bible, the rainbow, the very first rainbow, was a promise that God wouldn't judge the earth again by a flood. So I think he's saying, hey, on this throne, the first and the last, surrounded by mercy. Man, what's new every morning? Steve said new things God will give us. What's new every morning according to Lamentations? His mercies are new every morning. Let's read on. Uh, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. So here's a throne, someone sitting on it, a rainbow, lots of jewels, and then 24 other thrones around it. I believe, by the way, that's just the hierarchical structure of heaven. You know, I'm a very simple guy. Don't make the Bible hard. Some folks believe 24 elders refers to the church in heaven. The problem is you just don't find it in the Bible. You have to stretch to get that. Some folks think it's the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. I think it's just what it says. It's 24 elders who also are hierarchically... uh, They're an authority structure in heaven. You know, God believes in structure. God believes in authority. How did He do the church? The church has offices of pastor and deacon. How does He do the family? Father, mother, kids. You know what? There's nothing wrong with saying that in heaven there's God on the throne... And then around him, there's 24 other elders. There's also a hierarchy of angels. You know that? There's a cherubim, there's a seraphim, and then there's other angels. What's wrong with saying that in heaven, God has an authority, a hierarchical structure? He's on top, amen. And there's other elders who kind of oversee heaven, help, you know. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So that's what I think the 24 elders are. I think they are what they say. They're elders in heaven. Imagine leaving the Bible for what it says. That's amazing, isn't it? Let's move on here. These elders were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. It's a tough phrase. More literally, the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, the, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is a sevenfold function. He's represented here at the throne. And when John looked at it, he's like, man. And what you have is the Trinity. I'll show you Christ in a minute. Here you got God on the throne, all these thrones, and then a, the Spirit of God represented in His sevenfold functions. Verse 6, Before the throne there was like what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. It's getting uh, pretty intense, isn't it? And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a, like a man, at least a man's face, the fourth an eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, under, even under his wings. Some have asked, what are these creatures? I tell you what I think they are. I think they're heavenly created creatures who were made for the express purpose of giving praise to God. And I think they represent, personally, the four traits of Christ as presented in the Gospels. So I believe. can't prove that. For instance, um, the first was like a lion, the king of the Jews in Matthew, an ox, a servant in Mark. Uh, the fourth, like a man. Luke was a, he's a, presents Christ as the Son of Man. In John, he's presented as, as the Son of God, that eagle. I think he's representing here four character traits of Christ. Anyway, so he goes forward. What are these four creatures who are expressly made to worship God? What do they say? Read it with me. Can you read verse 8 with me, the last phrase there? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne. Now, catch that phrase. And the one who lives forever and ever. Then the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they worship Him. They lay their crowns before the throne. And they say, read this with me, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things. By Your will, they were created and have their being. So here's the picture. If you were to look into heaven right now, that's what I think is going on. There's a throne with 24 thrones around it. God's Spirit's represented there. Sitting on this throne is God the Father. Four creatures are also within the throne, and the 24 thrones are kind of four creatures who, who say, Holy, holy, holy. When they say, Holy, 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 then the 24 around them say, You are worthy, O Lord. It's kind of almost like a and antiphonal type of uh, chorus going on here. But I want you to know something very interesting. Why is all this going on? If I were to ask you this question, why do, people in, uh, why do beings in heaven and eventually us worship God? Why do they say, holy, holy, holy? Why do they say, you're worthy? What does verse 11 say? Look at it with me. You are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. You know what? I want to be very specific with you on this. The reason that heavenly beings worship God in heaven is for His creative power and acts. In fact, just jot that down in your study guide, would you? You see that on the teaching tool there. Just jot that down. Revelation 4, 1 through 11. God is being worshipped for His creative power and acts. That's what they're doing right now. God is a creative God. He made everything around it. And so that brings Him praise. Which is why the psalmist said, if you and I fail to praise Him, what will praise Him? The rocks. His creation. In other words, His creation will even cry out. God longs to be praised and worshipped by what He made. That's all a reflection of His creative power. I think that's something we don't hear a lot about. You know, we, we, we want to talk about how great God is for what He's done. And I'm not against that. But inherent in God's character, in His creative power, is room enough, reason enough, to give Him worship and praise. You should be able to walk out the door of your house, look at the trees, see the stars and say, God, You are worthy. If you never receive another blessing physically, what you see with your eyes ought to cause you to lift your hands and worship God. That's what they're doing in heaven. They're not waiting on a check in the mail or an answer to prayer. They are beings expressly created to worship God for what He is and who He is and what He is. He is a creative God. Write down this simple verse. Psalm 19. You may know it. If you know it, say it with me. The heavens declare... The glory of God. And the, the firmament shows His handiwork. So if someone ever asks you, hey, what's going on in heaven right now? What, what's, what's, what's God doing? I'll tell you what God's doing. He's receiving worship just for the fact that He made the earth and that He made us. But what's going on with Jesus? Let's move on to chapter 5. After He sees the throne with someone sitting on it and the 24 thrones... It says in chapter 5 that he, he saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. It was sealed with seven seals. And by the way, this probably is, I believe, reference to the book of Revelation. 
It's the vision that John wrote down. He saw this, and so he wrote this down in a scroll. And this is the scroll that had to be opened. He says, hey, who's worthy to break the seals? Open the scroll. A, a mighty angel proclaimed that. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or, earth could, or on the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then it says in verse 4, I wept and wept. And literally, the word is, I wailed. I didn't just cry. I didn't shed a tear. I wailed. A moaning from deep within that comes out in utterances. John said, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, why did he weep? I'll tell you why I think he wept. This scroll that had the seven seals is God's final judgment upon sin. When he opens it, beginning in chapter uh, 6, we begin to see the, the, his judgment on sin unfold. I'll tell you what I think. I think he was weeping. Because as long as sin remains unjudged, ultimately, that means that, that the church... And people take the brunt of it. You know that, don't you? Remember the seven churches I told you about? How they were under severe persecution? People that like your neighbors now? They take the brunt of the devil's work. You hear me? And as long as, as sin remains unpunished, as long as Satan goes un, untouched until that final end, then, then his, his work goes on and it hurts people. And I think that's why he's weeping. It's like, man, God... But what did they cry out in Revelation 5? How long? See Revelation 5 there? Or Revelation 6, actually. 6, 11 and so forth. How long till you finally come? I think John had some of the same feelings. How long? Who can best deal with sin? Now and ultimately? Well, that's where the next part of the chapter gets really good. I was crying, I think, because, man, who can, who can deal with these we want to see the scroll open so that somebody can finally deal with this sin problem. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. You're welcome to get excited with me here. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Past tense, by the way. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now watch this, circle this phrase or underline it, standing in the center of the throne. So what you got here is this, guys. You've got God sitting on the throne, 24 elders around Him, four living creatures worshiping Him, and you've got Jesus the Lamb standing in the center of the throne. Watch this. You've got God seated, Christ standing, and the sevenfold Spirit of God also around the throne. You've got the Trinity right there. John sees it all. He says, I saw this Lamb. He was encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down. And each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense. And they're the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now watch this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased Men for God. Look at me, church. You've been bought. Somebody's already paid a price for you. Say, Todd, I'm my first time in church. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I'm not even sure I even believe. Doesn't matter. Somebody bought you. They bought you. And they're waiting for you to come home. You've been bought. Let's read on. He's purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they'll reign on the earth. And 
Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. Man, that'd be a sight, wouldn't it? I can't add, hardly much, much must multiply. So I don't know what this number would be. But can you imagine God seated, Christ standing, the Spirit of God encircling, one throne, 24 thrones, four creatures, and then multiplied millions of angels saying together, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Why was the Lamb worthy? Someone tell me. Why is Jesus worthy of praise in heaven right now? You can speak of it. It's okay. Because He died for us. Watch this. God is being worshipped for His creative acts and power. Christ is being worshipped for His redemptive acts and power. I want to be very specific in this teaching with you. If you want to know what's going on in heaven right now, I'll tell you what's going on in heaven. The creatures and the elders are worshipping God because He made everything. And they're worshipping Jesus because He died for us. Now, I'll tell you, if they can be that specific about their praise, I'm tired of mushy, fuzzy worship, aren't you? Like, I just want to praise uh, somebody, the higher power, for making me feel good today. Why, what kind of deal is that? Why don't we say, God the Father, I praise you and worship you because you are holy and you show us your character by what you made. Thank you for making the earth. Jesus, I thank You that I was going to hell, but You reached down and saved my soul. I'm going to heaven. You died for me. Thank You, Jesus Christ. You with me? Specific praise is powerful praise. Generic, fuzzy praise gets about as high as the roof. So if you want to do it in heaven right now, they are specifically praising the Trinity for their, for their roles and parts uh, that they play. That's good teaching. That's good to know. And we ought to pattern that. Let me give you a... a, a notice the last two, three verses here of Revelation 5. Because what happens is really interesting. It says in verse 13, look with me, Revelation 5, 13. And then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, all that's in them singing. To him who sits on the throne... There's God, right? With me? You ought to circle the phrase, sits on the throne, and draw a line back to chapter 4... Verse 2. So they say, to him who sits on the throne, and then what? To the whom? To the Lamb. Who's what? Standing in the center of the throne. What do we give to these two? Praise and honor and glory and power. How long? Forever and ever. And when they said that, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's a heaven I want to go to. That's going on right now. In fact, I believe personally, if you take the book of Revelation and look at it as, a, as an overview, like I taught you the first couple weeks ago, as an overview, that's going on right now. And he's waiting to open that seal. I think Revelation 6, verse 11 is still to come. Revelation 6, 1. When he opens that first seal and that spirit of Antichrist is revealed, who knows when that will be? It may have already happened. We don't know. I'll tell you what's going on right before that, Revelation 4 and 5. Man, He is in heaven standing in the throne. God's seated on the throne. And everything made is worshiping God for His creative power. And they're worshiping Jesus for His redemptive power. I think the church ought to do the same while we're waiting. Amen? You say, Todd, I'm not in heaven yet. That's really cool. I like that, but I'm not in heaven yet. So what do I do? Let me talk to you about the major point here, and then we'll just kind of wrap things up. 
Just jot this down, would you? Worshiping the, the triune God is your primary aim now and then. Just jot that down in your teaching tool in your bulletin, would you? Worshiping the triune God is your primary aim now and then. I chose the word triune on purpose. I'm going to teach you this word. Don't let that word scare you. Here's why. I want you to listen to me very carefully. As your pastor, I want to teach you this. We believe in the triune God. That means a God that's comprised. This is, this is hard to explain. In fact, I can't explain it. So just work with me here. It's, 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 a, it's a God that's one, but He's three. It's not like an egg where you have one egg and three parts. God's not got three parts because Jesus is God and Holy Spirit's God. But yet they have three distinct roles. So I'm already lost and confused. But praise the Lord because He's that awesome, isn't He? But here's what I'm saying. We believe in the Trinity. You'll find religions and churches who don't believe that. Folks in Ankeny who don't believe in a triune God. We have friends on First Avenue, First Street. They don't believe in this. When I say friends, I mean friends. They say they call them, they're a church, they say. They're the Mormons. The Mormons don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe He's the brother of the devil. And that they're battling it out. There's other folks who have false beliefs. So I'm teaching you a word this morning that you need to know. We believe in a triune God. We believe in the Trinity. In fact, did you know that I think it's really cool? And Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it. I promise. I'm going to make my time limit this morning. I promise. Hang with me. Revelation ends with the triune God. Remember around the throne? God seated. Christ standing. The Spirit encircling. Did you know that in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, uh, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth. Do you know the word God in Hebrew there is plural? Watch this, people. The Bible begins with the Trinity and the Bible ends with the Trinity. We worship a triune God. That's my primary aim now and then. That's right. Going to church is not your primary aim. I want you to come. I want you to be here every week. But that's really not why you're made. Amen. Paying your car payment. Um, you know, raising your kids. I want you to do a good job at that. I want you to be on time with your bills. Those are all good things, but that's not why you were made. If that was the case, once you got all that paid and got your kids raised, you could just go back to dust. But see, there's an afterlife. There's a next life. And at that life, there are no car payments. Praise Jesus. You with me? There are no house repairs. And we all said, Amen. There are no emergency calls at 2 in the morning. There are no doctor bills from the, from the accident with your child. None of that's going to happen. Glory, glory. You know what this is going to be about? You joining with who's already there, the creatures and the elders and the angels that are millions upon millions, worshiping God and Jesus for His creative power and His redemptive power. Now, I, I can't wait to get there. And that's so hard for me to say. I mean, I really enjoy life. I'm, I'm a gusto kind of guy. And I love uh, our kids. And the, I mean, I love this church. I love living. But I want to tell you something. After a whole week of reading this, I've got to be honest with you. As much as I love you and our kids, I'm going to love it up there. Is that okay to say? It's okay to say. You need to long for heaven too. Now, some of you long to get there because of all the bad stuff in your life, and I'm okay with that. I long, like Paul said, I long to leave this body and get on up there. But wouldn't it be good if you longed to get up there and everything was going well? That's what you want. 
That's when your love for Jesus is really getting deep. When everything's going well on earth, but you're like, man, I've got to rid myself of this temporary dwelling. And I've got to get on up there where we're worshiping God and Jesus. Can I tell you how to live a life of worship now? We're not there yet. You're breathing, sitting, looking at me, so you're not there yet. And so how do we live a life of worship now? Let me give you some three simple ways to do that. Just jot these down or miscellaneous notes, would you? I'll do these real quickly. You're saying, yeah, right, we believe that. Um, first of all, get to the cross and stay there. Get to the cross and stay there. I want to make a statement to you. Worship begins at Calvary. You hear me? Unapologetically, without any timidity. You can't worship until you've been to the cross. And what are you going to worship? There is nothing to worship. Everything begins at Calvary. That's why. I've been saved since 1978. April of 78. And there was a time in my life when I was in college and I was in theological school and I was deep, man. I was deep. I was so deep that when they had communion, man, I was like, wish they'd get this over with. I said deeply, when they, played, when they played Amazing Grace, like, well, I wish they'd sing one of those new songs a little better than this old Amazing Grace stuff. I said deep that when someone hear their testimony, I'd be like, I wish you'd tell me something I didn't know. Explain the parts of the Bible that are really deep. Then one day, God got a hold of my heart. He said, you know what? You're so deep, you're just flat stuck. He said, you know, when you were a kid, I changed your life. I saved your soul. You were going to hell. And I came inside and and regenerated your wicked soul. And you're going to heaven now because of what I did. Grace only. How does it make you feel? I'm like, nah. And God began to change my whole heart. And now, you know what? You can't get deeper than a daily visit to Calvary. You with me? And to folks who, do, who get tired of visiting when they were saved, who get tired of remembering when they were born again, I just want to tell them, you know what? You need to take a trip to the cross. There's something about remembering when you were saved that really motivates you to serve the Lord and brings about a love in your life to God that's just hard to explain. I recall when it happened. Julie and I were sitting in bed. And you recall this. I can't even explain. I think it was a work of God in our family. We had one child. And, and uh, I was a youth pastor. And I just started singing, At the cross. At the cross, at the cross. Where I first saw the light. I started singing it. And just suddenly, tears just, I just started crying uncontrollably. We were kind of singing it together. And, and so I just leaned over and she held me and she started crying. I think probably 15 minutes or more. We just cried. I don't even know why to this day. Nothing was wrong. I think that was the very first time I got a sense that God saved my soul. And ever since that night, uh, I've been a very tender person about Calvary. I've been a very emotional person about when I became a Christian. You know why? Because I think there's something to be said for getting in the cross and staying there. In fact, just jot that verse down in Galatians 6.14. Paul said, God forbid that I should ever boast unless it's in the cross. So the truth is, the best testimonies are the kind that say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do for a living. It doesn't matter how much money I've got or what I don't have. I want to tell you something. I'm saved and going to heaven. 
And the whole church should rise up and be thankful. Those are the best testimonies. When a drug addict says, I used to be a drunkard. I used to be on drugs. But God saved my life and turned me around. I want to give glory to God. That's the testimonies that will shake the church up. Amen? And I want this church here. And I pray every day, God, give us a passion for the cross of Jesus Christ. We never get too old and too cold for shedding a tear about Calvary. When is that place in your life? In fact, in your, in your mind right now, go back with me to when you became a Christian. Start walking backwards. Before that time, you know, if he would have come back as Revelation depicts, you would have gone to hell. Because of the grace of God, he moved in your heart, gave you the faith to believe, you believe, and he turned your life around. I remember when you got saved, Dan. I just hit me like that. You got saved two years ago after 9-11. And thank God for the day you came in there and got saved. I'm looking around at other people. I, mean, I know a lot of them you got saved. You know, I think it's awesome. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, Todd, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't really know what you're talking about. Man, you came to the right place. Jesus Christ died for you. What we did this morning is buried and rose again so that you would not have to face the judgment of sin. He wants you to believe so you can go to heaven. Can I ask you to get to the cross where you'll first see the light? Let me quickly say two more things. Once you get there and you stay there, I want to tell you something. You need to gaze daily on God's character. His character. What did they say in Revelation? Holy, holy, holy. They didn't say presence, presence, presence. Blessings, blessings, blessings. Easy life, easy life, easy life. They just talked about God's character. When you get to the cross and you realize how lucky you are to be saved. And I use that in the right sense of the word. Read this, I say read the Psalms every day. Read a Psalm every day. It'll do wonders for your life about God's character. Once you get to the cross and gaze on His character, then give Him the very best, whether physical or spiritual. Jot these verses down and read them when you get home, would you? Romans 12, 1 and 2. What does it say? That we should give our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship. How do you worship on this earth? You give your body to God. That's right. Your body to God. It's the temple of the Spirit. If you're saved, if you've been to Calvary and you're saved, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. You belong to Him. You're His temple. I think that's some of the motivation behind giving your body to God. You're indwelt by God's Spirit. Please. Watch how we use our bodies. Amen? Is that okay to say? Sure it is. Read 1 Corinthians 6 and 5. You'll see that our bodies are temples. You can literally say, God, I give you my body. That's what the missionaries do. They physically give their bodies to the Lord so they can go to a different location that God calls them and they go there and they serve the Lord. Give Him your body spiritually. Colossians 3.23 says this. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. As to the Lord. Bob, I say this to you a lot. When you deliver your mail, you're really working for God. You know that. I know you think you're working for USPS. Fly like an eagle. But you're not. They're paying your bills. You're working for the Lord. So put that letter in that mailbox. Say this is for the Lord. Not the postmaster. This is for the Lord. Hey, when you flip burgers, run the assembly line, check out the patient, uh, close a home, whatever you're doing, 
do it as to the Lord. See, that's the spiritual side of life. It really is not that big a deal what you do, but it sure matters how you do it. That's how we live a life of worship. We get to the cross, we gaze on His character, and then we live every day as to the Lord. Look at the, look at the progression. Get, gaze, give. Say that with me. Get, gaze, and give. It needs to go in that order. If you've not been to Jesus Christ for salvation, you have nothing to give. Church, listen to me. You're serving out of an empty well. You'll run dry. Some folks, they wonder, how can some people stay so energized? How do they have such energy? I'll tell you what I think personally. I think it's a spiritual act of God. Paul called it the inward man principle. He said, though our outward man is perishing, the inward man's renewed. I'll tell you what that happens. When you realize how much God loves you and you are in constant fellowship with Him, there's an energy and a spiritual drive that I think is hard to explain. Now, I'm not saying we can't burn out. I'm not going down there. I'm just telling you. I'm not real big in a cycle battle. Most of the problems that we experience in our churches are probably not cycle related. They're spiritual related. Most people aren't really connected to God like they ought to be. And they're operating out of an empty well. In fact, if the, if the surveys are right, only about 12 to 15 of you in here really read your Bibles and commune with God every day. Did you know that? And you can get mad at me if you want. Now, maybe in a church plant it's a little higher. Okay, maybe 13 to 16. But if the stats of surveys across America, the church in America, are right, most people just really don't fellowship with God regularly. Is it any wonder we have dry churches? Dry preachers. Get to the cross. Spend time with God and then give Him your best. In a simple word, I'll tell you what I call this. And I'm going to be so basic here, you're going to love this. What I call this? I call this daily devotions. <laughs> you spend all this time preaching at us to tell us to have devotions? You got it. In fact, what if I ask you right now? Say, hey, what did you read in your Bible today? Now, don't do this. How many of you could tell us? So before you get mad at me for preaching on this, ask yourself, I guess I probably need it. There's people in this room who have gone months without opening this book. How are you going to know about God's character? How are you going to know about what He did for you? How are you going to know anything about this God we worship when, these, when the book is closed? So my simple message this morning is this. If you want to live a life of worship, then today and every day, Open the book. Say, Lord, show me wonderful things out of your law. That's what the psalmist says, Psalm 119. Teach me your truths and begin to focus on God. Worship Him every day. When you start doing this, you'll begin to mimic what's going on up there. Oh, granted, at a lower scale. But when that day comes and we're in heaven, you'll not be looking for a halo or a harp. You'll be looking for the throne in Revelation 4 and 5 with, the, with God seated on it and Jesus standing in it. And you'll have no problem joining right in saying, man, I've been worshiping some on earth, but I'm ready to worship for real up here now. I mean, we're still worshiping, but we're going to do it up there personally and we're going to do it a whole lot better. So how do you start worshiping, Todd? It all starts at the cross, doesn't it?
Let me ask you a question. Have you been to the cross?